Hi. Okay, so I'm Tom. Um, my, a bit of background about me, just to sort of extend on that. Uh, my actual research is in things like systems theory and cybernetics and data flow and things like that. Um, I do research with a, uh, with a company called Obashi. Uh, but what I'm going to be talking about today is sort of my own personal interests and some of the things I've been thinking about on my own as I've been doing research. Uh, I'm going to be talking about this cultural divide. Um, I've, I've prepared about 50% too much material, so I'm going to sort of skip some things out and try and move through it quickly. Uh, but just bear with me, uh, and we'll see if we can get to the end. Um, so a couple of things just to, to note before we get into the weeds. Um, the first thing is that um, I talked in the summary of this talk about the humanities, and I realized when I was preparing this that that was uh, like too narrow. Um, really, I want to include the social sciences as well. So even though I'm talking a lot about the humanities, I want to extend that out to things like you know, psychology and sociology and anthropology and uh, things outside of the humanities, because I think these arguments apply equally well to those fields as they do to the humanities. Um, the second thing is that um, when, I, uh, when I began writing this talk, I realized that in the summary I'd been maybe a bit too broad in the sciences. Um, so so um, I'll be talking quite specifically, I think, today about tech, because my background is computer science. Um, but I think that these arguments, it's important to relate them to, um, to the sciences generally, because disruption happens regardless of, of what the science is. Right? Like we're going to see a lot of these things coming from genetic engineering and these kinds of fields in the future. Um, so, so I, I am talking about this divide between the humanities and the sciences, but I hope you understand sort of what I'm thinking when I'm talking about that. So let's talk about that disruption. Um, the effect that tech has on culture is huge, right? There's a great Zay Frank quote that, that summarizes this really well, um, where you can sort of stand, and you can see it in Republica. Um, you can sort of stand in the middle of the street and see people look at their phone and smile, and life is being lived there in the, in the distance between the screen and the face, right? Um, and the way that tech influences culture is like, it's very personal, right? It's one-to-one. -one. Um, but it's also global, and it's kind of geopolitical. You see this in the alleged um, election meddling in the, the 2016 US election, right? Where Facebook may have had like, quite a bit to do with, with the way that people came to conclusions about who they were going to vote for. Um, so cultural disruption happens on, like, on this, this broad range of scales, and yet we keep making the same mistakes when in, in tech right, and in disruption. Uh, mistakes like uh, the interaction with, between tech and women and minorities, uh, which fortunately is like, beginning to get better, but progress is slow. Uh, problems like job loss due to automation, things like that. Uh, which we don't really seem to have like a, a, an appropriate solution for that everyone can agree on. Um, so these kinds of mistakes keep coming up, and I think that's really interesting, and I want to sort of explore why that is. And I don't think it's because we're not paying attention. I think we genuinely care about these issues, right? And we care about whether or not what we do when we're, when we're like disrupting culture and when we're affecting cultural issues, I think we all really care about whether or not the effect that we're making there is, is good or bad. Um, I think the problem is that we, we don't know whether it's good or bad. We don't have the, the mental toolkit that's required to begin picking apart these issues and putting context to them and understanding them. Um, and I think that's because in, in tech especially, and in the humanities, sorry, in the sciences generally, um, we, we don't tend to value the humanities. We, we don't tend to integrate the humanities into what we do in the sciences. Um, and this is a shame because this is what the humanities are good at. The humanities are this... this mental toolkit that we can use to sort of pick apart problems, right, and understand them. Um, especially when these problems are cultural in nature or rhetorical in nature. Um, there's a couple of things that, that they do especially well, so I'm going to sort of touch on, um, on poetry and on philosophy and how they do this as examples. Um, so poetry is very good at packaging up 
um, like worldview and experience and the human condition and putting that onto like an A4 piece of paper so I can hand that to you, right, and say, hey, I think this is lovely and I want to I share this part of myself with you, right? They're very good at condensing this down. Um, so, like, let's actually do that here, right? The, one of my favorite poems is this poem by uh, Leonard Cohen called Sweetest Little Song. Uh, and it just says, you go your way, I'll go your way too. And I love that. I, I, for me, this is about, like, the... Um, the sacrifices that we make when we're in love with a person, and we, we maybe sacrifice ambition or we sacrifice opportunities for the things that matter to them. Um, and I, I suspect that it maybe makes, means different things to different people like in the audience, right? But the whole point of this is that this is a part of me that I can share with, with you guys here on stage, right? And it's so succinct, it manages to deliver like this, this human thing in a, in a very small little package. Um, so I think that's great. The humanities are really good at doing that. Um, another thing that would be great to do, once you can package these things up, it'd be great to actually reason about them and have a bit of rigor about what we think about cultural problems, right? Once you can understand these cultural problems, be able to process them and, and discuss the nuances and discuss like quite small, well-defined things is really good. And this is what philosophy does, right? So philosophy and maths are kind of cousins. They basically do the same thing. It's just that maths works in like uh, very, very well-defined things like partial differential equations and tangles and like and graphs and discrete mathematics and things like that, right? Whereas philosophy works on, on things like morality and, and love and respect and very hard to define things that still affect us and like really impact us culturally. Being able to reason about that, being able to have some rigor about that and sort of understand it in a detailed way, as well as discuss that in a detailed way and like and have uh, educated discussions about that is really important. So this is, this is sort of where this idea of a mental toolkit comes from, right? Once we have these, these tools to, to uh, deliver our worldview and our experiences to other people, or to be able to process that and understand other people's by like, analyzing it and interpreting it, um, this is what the humanities are good at. Um, it, it puts what we do into context. Um, so I think that's important because not having the humanities becomes kind of dangerous. Right? Um, and it can become dangerous in a couple of ways. Um, I'll explore two. Um, the first way that the humanities can be kind of dangerous is, um, is what happens when we don't understand the impact of what we're putting out into the world before we put it out into the world. Um, it's, it can be really hard to predict these things, uh, but because we keep repeating these mistakes, we should be able to at least spot them things and prevent them from happening in the future, and we don't. So the example that I'll give of this is uh, what Google does with these little cards at the top of Google searches. If you search for like uh, the height of the Eiffel Tower, it'll summarize, it'll like scrape Wikipedia and it'll summarize this information and it'll put it out there for you in this little card. And sometimes this goes awry, right? So you get results like this. Um, where someone searched for King of the United States and they've got that back result saying all hail King Barack Obama, Emperor of the United States of America, which is pretty ludicrous, right? Um, and what's scary is that this kind of thing then gets used by Google to inform things like Google Home, um, Amazon do a similar thing for Alexa, right? So this kind of detail can really begin to impact like the way that we get news and it's, it's kind of innocuous. I think it's actually kind of cute in the Google example. Um, but it becomes really scary when this sort of thing is the little news articles at the side of our Facebook feed, right, where they're also unverified. This information is being scraped and fed to us, and now 85% of people get their news from places like Facebook and Google, and then, like, this is an issue. Um, so the fact that this sort of thing keeps happening, the fact that we don't fix these problems indicates to me that, like, that we don't have this mental toolkit, that we're doing a bad job of integrating the humanities, and then also that like, these dangers are actually present, right? and, and we, we sometimes make these cultural mistakes and make them worse. Um, another thing that's uh, kind of scary to me is uh, what happens when we don't inoculate ourselves against bad, uh, bad arguments. Um, 
so I, I think the humanities sort of work as a bit of an immune system for reason. Um, the immune system works by like taking a, a small a vaccine is like a small sample of a virus, right? And you deliver this small sample of a virus to the human immune system, and it recognizes that and it builds up antibodies so that if it sees it again, it can fight it. And, and training in humanities can be kind of similar. So if you're reading people's arguments, if you're reading like debates or, or essays, um, if you're listening to lectures about these things, um, you get exposed to a lot of good reasoning and a lot of bad reasoning. And then when you read the critiques of those essays, you can spot the bad reasoning, right? You say, oh, I see, I, I was taken in by this thing, but actually I can see why there's some logical inconsistency there, and I'm not going to fall for that in the future. That's really valuable. In tech, we don't have that, because we don't have a humanities background, right? All of us just speak to computers all the time. Um, and, and this becomes quite dangerous, right? Because sometimes people are taken in by, by bad arguments. Um, and this feels like it could be kind of sensationalist. It feels like I'm talking about sort of weaponizing programmers with these malicious arguments. But it doesn't have to be that sensationalist. Like there was the, um, the Google memo by James Damore um, that came out um, in July 2017. Um, and and people, are, people are really taken in by this. I work with people, like computer science PhD students, right? Smart people um, who, who still believe that this essay, this memo was, like, was really good. This was the memo that talked about um, women being biologically inferior in tech, which is obviously ridiculous, right? And the arguments that he put forward were deeply flawed. The, um, the citations that he made uh, to gender studies and things like that were really outdated. Um, and his argument, it, it didn't hold up to critique at all. But that doesn't matter if you can't critique it, right? If you don't have this immune system for, for rhetoric and for reason, um, you, it, it's really easy to, be, to begin to fall prey to these arguments. Um, so I think the humanities sort of act as this, this immune system that we, we lack in tech, and that's problematic if we begin to really have this profound impact on culture at both like a local scale and then a planetary scale right, in geopolitics. Um, this is usually the bit that people in tech, their eyes light up and their ears perk up, right? Because as soon as you're talking about business opportunities, they think you can get a startup out of it. Um, but I, I think we sort of iterate on the same kinds of disruption again and again. So usually disruption is something to do with convenience, right? Like eBay is a convenient way to sell things online. Um, I've seen some ads for Zipjet in the, in the underground system here. Uh, Zipjet is like a... a a uh, convenience platform, a, a gig economy platform for doing your laundry really conveniently. So you sort of like hand over your clothes and 36 hours later someone comes back at an exorbitant price with them like ironed for you. Um, Uber, right, is, is an example of iterating on convenience and getting taxis easier. Um, so let's dive into Uber a little bit. Um, I'm, I'll, I'll sort of contrast Uber against taxis in the UK. Um, I think taxis in Berlin are maybe a bit better than what I'm aware of in the UK, so I'll, I'll draw on my experiences. Um, taxis in the UK aren't always particularly safe. Um, they're, they're not super unsafe either, but being a little bit unsafe is being too unsafe. Um, and it's unsafe especially for young women at night. Um, they can be really expensive. Things are always more expensive than you want them to be, but taxis are like really pricey. It's hard to get a lift. Um, especially for students. Um, taxis are pretty hard to regulate because cities tend to regulate the taxi industry like on, on their own. And it's not super hard to regulate, but again, it's hard enough to regulate. Um, and taxis are really inconvenient to get. Like, I'm from Scotland, so we wait for 20 minutes in the rain and the taxi doesn't show up and you've got to call another one. Um, or the taxi arrives too early and you're still packing your bag and then you go outside and it's left already, you've got to call another one and you're waiting for 20 minutes in the rain again. Um, and so, like, and so Uber comes along and says, man, Tom keeps waiting in the rain for 20 minutes for these taxis and they never seem to arrive. Let's fix that. Um, so let's take a look at what Uber does. Well, Uber is slightly more convenient, right? 
Um, but that convenience come, actually comes at cost. So um, Uber's still unsafe. It, it's, it's marginally safer than regular taxis, but it's still unsafe. And again, a little unsafe is too unsafe. Um, it's, it's reliant on a really questionable economic model. Um, I, I'm highly skeptical of the gig economy. I think the gig economy can be really interesting. I think it can also be like really scary. And we're kind of having this trial by fire where um, people are adopting this like at scale. We've got millions of people now making their living on the gig economy. Whether or not that's a good thing, I'm not sure. And, and we'll see. Um, also, um, on, the, on the economic model, Uber don't care about their drivers. Like Uber are actively developing um, autonomous vehicles that are going to replace all of their employees, right? So this whole gig economy thing that's really bad to regulate and like doesn't work very well with government, we'll see how that pans out. And this is another thing as well. Uber's really difficult to regulate. Um, its, its perspective seems to be that if it can move faster than government, government will never catch it. Um, and I don't know that this is the kind of um, that this is the kind of company that we want to be funding, right, and supporting. Um, so, so. Um, I think the, the, the whole point of this is that I think there are actually opportunities here. If we have the context of, for the things that we build and the understanding of like, social and, and societal issues and cultural issues, if we can begin to pick these things apart and sort of understand why they happen, we can maybe begin to try and fix them. And so this mental toolkit can actually be like a platform where we can begin to, like, to understand new ways of disruption, like orthogonal ways of, of disrupting things that aren't just another app that makes things slightly easier. Um, Cool, which all gets me to the main point of what I want to say. Um, this was a weird slide to write. Um, <laughs> um, I, because genuinely, like everything that I've been saying here, I'm, I, I believe in, obviously, right? And it, I think this is a really exciting thing, this integration of science and the humanities. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I just had to present for like about 15 minutes on the utility of the humanities. And we have this really weird like, um, obsession in tech and in sciences generally with utility. Value isn't utility. These two things aren't synonymous. Like, uh, utility is a component of value, it's true. And, and there's a lot of value in having utility. But utility isn't the only kind of value out there. There's a, there's a lot of kinds of value to, to adopt. Um, this reminds me of, um, of a Richard Feynman story where he talks about this like, hypothetical friend uh, sitting out in the park and they pick up a flower and they talk, the, the friend is like an artist and they're talking about like, how beautiful this flower is and like, maybe some memories that the flower evokes. Um, and Feynman chimes in and talks about the things that he likes about the flower, right? So he talks about, um, he'll, he'll maybe talk about photosynthesis or he'll maybe talk about how this like, flora has evolved through the millennia. Um, and the friend gets really irate, gets really upset at this. It's like, why, why do you physicists always have to spoil everything? Why, why do you always have to pick apart this detail? Why can't you just enjoy something for what it is? Um, and Feynman's kind of taken aback. The whole point of this story uh, for Feynman is that you don't lose the beauty of the humanities by also adopting this detailed scientific worldview. And my point here is that the inverse is also true. We don't have to give up. Um, all of the detail and all of like, the lovely rigor that we get in the sciences by also appreciating beauty and valuing things that aren't utility. We, we can have both. This isn't some sort of trade-off. This isn't some sort of zero-sum game. Um, and I think that's really important. I, I don't understand why we have this thing in tech where, where things are only valuable if they're pragmatic. Um, I, I mentioned in the summary of this talk um, a Stephen Hawking quote. 
uh, where Stephen Hawking said that philosophy is dead. And what he meant when he said philosophy is dead, kind of the, the discussion around this was that um, philosophy doesn't solve physics problems anymore, which is a really strange thing to say, because the point of philosophy was never to solve physics problems. Um, the point of philosophy is just to sort of, is to go into what I said before, right? Sort of tackling these hard to define things. And as natural philosophy became something distinct from regular philosophy, we called it physics and we made it its own field. Um, but this perspective that philosophy is dead is, is quite a pervasive feeling within the sciences. I think a lot of people who do, who do scientific research um, have this perspective that the humanities are dying out, that we don't have to fund them, that they're not worthy of resources, and that we can just sort of leave people to do them until they fade into obscurity. Um, and, and I think that this perspective sort of promotes a cynicism and an ignorance of other valuable things, things that are valuable that don't have utility. And we miss out on that as a culture, and we, we, we lose things as a culture because we don't value them. Um, and so this is the point that I really want to make. I think, I think that it's true that there's a lot to gain from understanding the humanities. Um, I think that they, they help to shed our, our work in context. They, had, they help to like, shed light on what we do and, and help us to understand it more in the context of the people that it actually affects. Um, it can protect us, it can be this kind of immune system, um, which is really powerful and really important, and it might actually mean that by adopting the humanities, we can learn new ways to disrupt and new ways to innovate, and we can actually do that responsibly, being informed by this mental toolkit that we give ourselves. Um, but that doesn't matter. Like, well, it matters, but obviously, <laughs> otherwise I wouldn't be talking about it. But the, um, but the thing that really matters is that we can just we can value the humanities because they're the humanities, because they have these properties that the sciences don't. Because the beautiful, well, the sciences are beautiful, but the humanities are beautiful in their own distinct way. Um, and I hope that that's sort of like what you take away from this, if nothing else. Um, if you've enjoyed this, if you think this is interesting, um, there's a few people that you should, that you should check out. Um, CP Snow, did I, are we doing okay for time? Are we doing okay for time? Great, okay, cool. Um, in that case, I can go into this. Fantastic. Um, C.P. Snow uh, wrote a, uh, a lecture, which then became a series of essays that you can now buy. They're very good. In 1959, um, it's interesting because uh, a lot of people disagreed with him. So you get this sort of balance, right? This critique that I was talking about before is actually quite good for informing your own immune system about this, this sort of way of... Um, uh, this way of thinking about the world, as well as being on this topic, so it's sort of two birds with one stone. Um, Craig Maud and Majet Szyslowski uh, are both modern day. Um, Majet Szyslowski actually spoke here last year, which is what inspired me to, to submit a talk here this year. Um, they both have a fine arts background. Um, Craig Maud did book publishing, Majet Szyslowski did oil painting, um, and they've both also been involved in Silicon Valley doing startups and websites and apps and things like that. Um, uh, so Majet Szyslowski's talk here last year obviously is a great place to begin, but anything that he writes and all of his talks are pretty like, stellar, so I check those out. Um, and Craig Maud's uh, long-form podcast interview just from a couple of weeks ago is very, very good. Um, it was actually my introduction to his work, and I've been soaking it up since, and it, it actually kind of informed some of the stuff that I've said in this talk, which is great. Um, so I would check out Craig Maud's work as well. Um, you can find me at probablytom.com if you're interested in the stuff that I do. I write there very infrequently, um, but I'm interested in setting up newsletters. Um, I, I haven't written anything at this tinyletter.com slash probablytom, but... Um, if you've enjoyed this and you want to hear some more of it, maybe sign up there, and if a couple of people do, I'll, I'll write on it, and that could be really interesting. Um, thanks so much. This was great. I'd love to answer any questions you've got.
So we have nine minutes for a short question and answer a session. Please be very um, smart and simple, short and simple. No comments, direct questions to our guests here, and I will come to you there. And yeah, I think throw three or four questions we can we can manage. Okay. Yes, that's right. Oh, uh, you get a microphone, I think. Come over, come over. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, very brief question. How do you uh, have people value things which they cannot measure? People who are focused on technology, on things that they can measure, whose life is focused around ones and zeros. How do you make them value that which will not dissolve into one and zero? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, I think that there are things that those people value that aren't ones and zeros, though. Um, like, for example, I think they really enjoy going to like a stand-up show that makes them laugh, um, that sort of thing, right? Or, or coming to, to things like Republica. Like, there's a lot of people here who who are interested in like hearing people talk, right? And just spend their lives in ones and zeros. We had a great talk just before me on um, uh, detecting uh, minds, uh, detecting minds in in Ghana using deep learning. Um, there's, there's nothing quantitatively valuable about that, right? You, you can't boil that down to some sort of, like, some sort of uh, measure of how valuable that talk was, but the talk was interesting and it, it inspires this creativity. So I, I think people who spend a live their lives in ones and zeros, as you said, um, which is well put, um, they, they already value things that they can't measure. Um, I think the problem is that then they, they step into work and suddenly the only things that they value are things that they can measure. I don't know how we make that transition, but I think a lot of the transition is just exposure, exposure to like interesting pieces of philosophy, poetry that they can actually relate to. Um, I suspect it probably is best to happen from a young age. I think like high school education and things like that are a great way in. Um, yeah, does that answer your question? Fantastic. Okay, cool. More questions? Okay. Hi, um, Hi. so I'm a philosopher. Oh, uh, really interesting. Uh, I was hoping you were going to mention C.P. Snow. Oh, great. Um, my reading of C.P. Snow is the fact that he talks about the different languages and the different literatures that kind of were about in the 1950s and the fact mm. that two people couldn't have the same conversation. Right. Um, you might have a different interpretation, but yeah. in what way has this really changed in the last 60 years? And if it hasn't changed at all in the last 60 years, then what hope is there that it is going to change in the next five? Oh, that's um, complicated. <laughs> um, um, so, so, yeah, um, just a, a bit of background for people who haven't already read C.P. Snow or aren't actively philosophers. Um, C.P. Snow, in, in the two cultures, one of the things that he touches on is this idea that um, two people who are, the two cultures obviously are the humanities and the sciences. He makes, he's talking about this rift. Um, and he argues that if you're, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but he argues that um, if, if you take two people, one from each culture, that they can't actually have like a, a conversation because they almost speak different languages, that this rift had become so, so strong. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if that's necessarily like, correct to its logical extreme, that, that you can't actually have a discussion. Um, but I think what C.P. Snow's getting at is that people talk past each other. Um, and I think you see that more now in that there aren't just two cultures, there are several cultures, and, and they're all sort of fractured. And as people begin to specialize more, um, even, even within a discipline, people often talk past each other. So I can find it difficult speaking to other um, computer science students. In fact, uh, the guy who I sit across from um, oftentimes doesn't really... Um, doesn't really understand why I do the research that I do because his research is in sort of like biological computing and mine is in like systems theory. 
Um, and we talk past each other, and we almost have two cultures, right? But we're both computer scientists. Um, my point being, I think it's much worse now. Um, because, because I think we specialize so much. Um, but I don't, again, I don't think it has to be that way. And I think you see a lot of people who try not to specialize and try to generalize, try to bridge these two cultures and learn a bit about each side. And the more exposure you get, again, and the more sort of high school education you have around this kind of thing, the more appreciation that each side has for the other and the more like, curiosity that they have for each other, the more we should be bridging that gap. Does that answer your question? Okay, cool. Excellent. <laughs> Okay, we have time for one more question. Short and simple, direct to our speaker. Yeah. Hi. Uh, Hi. Thanks for the interesting talk. So you approach um, humanities from a technical background, from a computer scientist background. Mm. How do you think, um, or is it equally possible to approach the technical aspect from a humanities background? Or is that, because to me that seems like you need a much more profound knowledge of techniques uh, to, to kind of get into it. Yeah, honestly, I, I, I don't know because I don't have too much of a, of a humanities background myself. So it's really hard to say how easy it is to go in either direction. Um, my suspicion is that um, it sort of depends on your outlook on the other side. Um, if you're skeptical about whether or not the other side is actually valuable, you sort of put up your own barriers to it. So I think a lot of people in, um, in tech or, or in like the sciences generally try and learn about the humanities, but are, are like hardcore skeptical about whether or not that's actually going to have a payoff. And as a result, they don't take very much from it because they're not very open-minded about it. Um, I have a suspicion that the same is probably true um, on the other side, right? So if I had a humanities background and I was trying to learn about tech, but I didn't value tech in the same way that people in tech often don't value the humanities, um, I, think it, I think I would just find it very frustrating and I wouldn't get that into it. My, my point being, I think it depends on your background and how you approach it more than it depends which side of the divide you're on. Um, does that answer your question? Fantastic. Okay. Okay. We are almost over with our session. Um, but first of all, thanks to you and thanks to our guests. Thank you, Jim. Thank you.